in the name of Jesus. This is a familiar phrase, one that we have probably heard many times. It is a phrase we heard in our New Testament reading of 1 John, and we will hear it again in our Acts 4 passage. Both of these New Testament passages were written in the hundred years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Both the letter of 1 John and the account of the Acts of the Apostles were written in a time when the early church was trying to figure out who they were going to be, how they were going to shape their lives, how they were going to live into this identity that Jesus had left with them. In the name of Jesus, this is a very familiar phrase. And because we swim in the waters of 21st century United States, where Christianity has been the dominant religion for a couple hundred years, we can forget this na- that this name, Jesus of Nazareth, we can forget what it meant 2,000 years ago. We can forget the scandal associated with this name in the early days of the church. Doing something in the name of this Jesus meant doing, proclaiming that you were following a crucified criminal. To be a follower of this Jesus was to be someone who went around believing illogical things about a rabbi called Messiah who had been resurrected. In our Acts passage, we are about to hear that the powerful and the privileged in Jerusalem are wary of this name, Jesus. There is scandal in this name. And it is a scandal that when we listen closely, continues to shake our world to its core. God is still speaking. Let us listen to this passage from Acts 4. The next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Ananias, the head priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is no salvation in, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do you build your life around? What defines you? What shapes your plans, your priorities, your principles? In short, what or who do you worship? This is a question we need to ask ourselves, not just once, but every day over and over again. We each live lives that are guided by certain principles. We build our days around certain priorities. Whether we admit it or not, we worship certain things. One of the most incisive recent writings I have read about this human tendency to worship 
was written by David Foster Wallace in his 2005 address at Kenyon College. Wallace had a complicated relationship with religion and with life. Struggle, he struggled with depression before his suicide in 2008 at age 46. And while Wallace never, as far as I could find, professed to a religion, I find that his following words sound remarkably in spirit with those of John Calvin, the founder of our Presbyterian reform tradition. So here is an excerpt from, his, from Wallace's speech and essay, This is Water. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is because pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you ha are enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It is codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. It is the skeleton of every great story. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that is what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom the freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But the really important, most precious kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in a myriad petty, unsexy ways every day. Again, Wallace was not religious in a confessing, professing way. But the insights, the conviction he shares here pierce deeply into my own understanding of faith and religious life. It is ferociously tempting to worship ourselves every day. It is tempting to see our everyday relationships and events only in terms of how they affect me. It is tempting to see traffic as a front against me and my schedule. To see taxes as stealing from me and my hard work. To see a crying baby or a homeless person as distracting me from the things that I should be doing. 
Even if we call ourselves Christians, even then we are in danger of using the language of religion in order to build ourselves up and fortify us from the world. We see this in the way that people wield the words in the name of Jesus as weapons. We all know religious leaders who assert their power to the detriment of others, and they do this in the name of Jesus because God told me to do this. Religious language can be used to fortify our own skull-sized kingdoms. In fact, this phrase, in the name of Jesus, might be so familiar to us that even professing Christians might recoil from it, might wince when we hear it. If we want to understand more clearly what it means to do things in the name of Jesus, that's when it's helpful to do the Presbyterian thing and return to the scripture, to read it again, not just alone on our own, but with other people, and to try to see how these familiar, even hurtful words might be part of a bigger story, might be able to be reclaimed as part of a more helpful healing narrative of the world. In our Acts passage, Peter is on trial before the high priest and the council. They have called him to demand he answer, by what name did you do this? And he responds, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God resurrected, the stone you rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter defends himself and is worth noting that he is on trial not just for what he is preaching and teaching, He is on trial because of what he has done, because that he has healed a man who is sick and crippled, and he has done it outside of the normal parameters of religious observance. Peter is on trial not just for using the name of Jesus, but because by the power of that name, he was reaching out to people and doing good deeds in a way that was considered improper. Peter, a lowly fisherman, is not staying in his place and keeping quiet. He is not obeying the laws as they have been laid out. In the, name of P- in the name of Jesus, Peter is cavorting with the sick and the crippled and the criminal. In the scandalous name of Jesus, Peter is messing with the status quo. The writer of 1 John, as Lucretia read, also mentions the name of Jesus, that familiar phrase. The letter says that a brother or sister in need must be loved in the name of Jesus. In the convicting name of Jesus, those in need must be loved with truth and action, not just words and speech. In each of these passages, the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth is not the justification for giving a self-righteous speech or building a higher wall around one's own opinions. In both of these passages, The name of Jesus knocks down walls, obliterates boundaries, pulls disciples out of their comfort zone. In the name of Jesus, the disciples are called to engage more with the world. They're called to pay more attention to other people. They are called to cross roads and regions and even religions, reaching out to men and women, Jews and Gentiles, Judeans and Samaritans and Ethiopians and beyond. The disciples are to do these actions in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who reached out to others with such scandalous persistence. As David Foster Wallace named, 
This is hard. It is hard to remain aware of others, to take ourselves out of the center of the universe. The world is full of strong forces that push us back towards worshiping ourselves, our own skull-sized, yard-sized kingdoms. Yet if we take the name of Jesus seriously, not just in word, but in action, then we will see how the incarnate God is leading us onward. Like the shepherd of Psalm 23, she is leading us on a journey that will take us through valleys, through meadows, past still waters, taking us into places and relationships that will surprise us. When I went to college, for the first few weeks, I was overwhelmed and homesick. Overnight, all the structures I had built my life around had changed completely. I had freedom, oh, so much freedom, and it exhausted me. I wasn't sure who I was anymore without my sisters to argue with, or my parents to talk to, or my backyard to wander in. I didn't have to negotiate anymore about using the car with anyone, or do anyone else's dishes, or let anyone know what I was doing with my day. My life revolved utterly and completely around me, and I did not even know where to begin. Somewhere I read about an old tradition that existed for farmers in the Outer Hebrides in Scotland. And this tradition involved praying throughout the day, offering specific prayers for whatever mundane task you were doing. This is a practice common in Christian monasteries and in rabbinical Judaism. Nearly every action of the day, whether it's getting dressed or going to the bathroom or sitting down for a meal or cleaning it up, has an accompanying prayer a way of making an otherwise boring activity into an act of worship offered back to the creator. So I printed off some of these prayers and I plastered them around my room. I pasted a prayer next to my window for when I woke up. I put a prayer above my bed for when I went to sleep. I pasted one next to the closet for when I got dressed. And I even adapted one about milking a cow to put next to my computer. Those prayers became a structure to my day, a way for me to shape my thoughts in the midst of so much freedom, a way to anchor me in a sea of self-centeredness. Now, I confess, this prayer practice didn't last long, probably just a few weeks. Eventually, I built a new rhythm of life. I got settled into my classes and homework and other activities. I started babysitting and made friends and found a worshiping community. As happens to all of us, many things started to fill my life, and all too quickly, I let my own self-dictated needs and wants prioritize my days. I never prayed the same way as I did those early, unnerving days of college. But when I look back, I see that while those early days were disorienting and chock full of lonely homesickness, they also were special. Those tough days forced me for my own mental and emotional health to reach out past myself. I needed to reach out and claim in word and deed that there was something bigger going on. And while all too easily I did get comfortable with the idea of myself as the center of the universe again, in those early lonely days, I needed to remind myself that someone else was in charge. 
Someone else was shaping the rhythms of creation. Someone else was governing the rising and setting of the sun. Someone was there, a holy and loving mystery. And this someone was so much bigger than my own thoughts and feelings. Our middle hymn today, which we'll sing in a few moments, draws on an ancient Celtic prayer, probably from about the 8th century. It uses much of the same language that I found so meaningful 15 years ago. And as we sing, I encourage you to read the words carefully. Because what the speaker is doing over and over again, even while they're claiming their place in creation, is they are naming how they are being pulled into closer communion in the name of Jesus with all of creation. In this hymn, the name of Jesus does not create a fortress. Instead, this name invites the speaker into a greater awareness of the world, a whole world that is saturated with the glory of God. The speaker is not the center of the universe. The speaker-singer is part of God's universe, part of a universe in which all things might reveal the living, loving Lord among us. I wonder, for each of us, what might be a meaningful spiritual practice for us to adapt and adopt going forth into the day and week to come. I wonder what actions, small or large, we might do that will remind ourselves that I am not the center of the world. I wonder what we might do in the name of Jesus in order to push against the forces that want us to worship ourselves. Gathering together to worship, together as a community, is a good start. I wonder what other ways we might live into this call. The disciples in the early church had to figure out who or what was going to shape their lives. They had to decide if they were going to worship their safety or their self-righteousness or their status quo. They had to decide if they were going to stay hidden in an upper room or go back to their families or if they were going to go out into the world and do something in the name of Jesus. They had to decide if they were going to let the words and witness of Jesus of Nazareth reorder their lives, reshape their priorities, recalibrate their hearts, and not just once, but over and over and over and over again. Doing faithful actions the name of Jesus was not simple then. It is not simple now. 2,000 years ago, as Peter stood trial, the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth was scandalous for a reason. I wonder what it would take to make this name, in word and deed, scandalous once again. Our prayer of commitment today is adopted from words from Teresa of Avila. Let us pray. Christ, you have no body but ours, no hands, no feet on earth but ours. Ours are the eyes with which you look compassion on this world. Ours are the feet with which you walk to do good. Ours are the hands with which you bless all the world. Ours are the hands, ours are the feet, ours are the eyes. We are your body. You have no body now on earth but ours. In your holy name, help us be your faithful disciples, not just in word and speech, but in truth and action. Amen.